Hello. Good, good uh, afternoon. It's great to see uh, everybody here. Um, my name is Chris Megson, and I teach uh, in the drama department at Royal Holloway College, University of London. Um, and I'm really pleased and uh, privileged to be able to chair this panel, which is on theatre of action. And its broad focus is the discussion of the relationship between theatre and politics uh, in contemporary Britain. Um, we're going to have 45 minutes or so of discussion um, with the panellists, and obviously that will be opened out into question and answer too. So although it can be quite nerve-wracking to ask questions, and particularly to be the first one or two people to ask a question, it's always very nerve-wracking. I do encourage you to take this opportunity um, to ask any question that, that's on your mind or on that broad theme that you think you'd like an answer to. So please do uh, feel free to ask questions just by raising your hand. And I believe the microphone will find you. Um, we have two panellists uh, this afternoon. Uh, John Caird on my left and Matt Charman on my right. John Caird is an honorary associate director of the Royal Shakespeare Company, principal guest director of the Royal Dramatic Theatre Stockholm and a freelance theatre, opera and musical theatre director and librettist, working regularly at the National Theatre in London, in the West End, on Broadway and all around the world. As well as directing numerous productions of classic plays from Shakespeare and Johnson to Gorky, Strindberg and Brecht, he's directed the world premieres of many new plays, operas and musicals. He's also directed, co-directed and adopted novels for the theatre and musical theatre, including renowned productions of Les Miserables, Nicholas Nickleby, Hamlet, Candide and Peter Pan. His book, Theatre Craft, is published by Faber uh, this year, and uh, I warmly commend that to you. Such a hard CV to follow that, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> yes, who are you? <laughs> <clears throat> Not at all. Matt Charman is an award-winning playwright. Let's start that <laughs> Award-winning playwright. His first play, A Night at the Dogs, won the Verity Bargate Award and was performed at the Soho Theatre in 2005. Uh, his second play, The Five Wives of Maurice Pinder, premiered at the Cottesloe uh, National Theatre in 2007. Described by one theatre critic as a metaphor for the potential dangers of liberal intervention, Matt's next play, The Observer, was directed by Richard Eyre in 2009, also at the Cottesloe. Matt was Pearson Writer-in-Residence at the National Theatre through 2008. He's a recipient of a Peggy Ramsey Award and a winner of the Catherine Johnson Prize. That's rather good, So, our panellists. Um, we, want, we want to kick off by uh, having short statements and comments from, from each person. So maybe we could start with okay. you, John, if that be okay. Um, it's nice to be here. When, when I looked at what we were all supposed to be talking about um, I thought I should bone up on what we're all going to be listening to, I believe there's going to be an extract from uh, Shaw's play Candida later on, which I'm sure you all know intimately well um, and I read I had the great privilege of reading all three of Matt Charman's published plays in the last week which I've enjoyed enormously, I was just talking to Matt about it, they're really wonderful um, but in my, in, as part of my research, um, just yesterday, I, I reread the uh, preface that Shaw wrote to his 
volume of plays which he calls plays, uh, pleasant plays. He wrote these three groups of plays, plays pleasant and plays unpleasant. The unpleasant plays are sort of politically crusading, quite angry plays um, about social issues. And the plays pleasant are much more um, sort of generous, charming, intellectual um, forays into the subject matter, Arms of the Man, Candida, The Man of Destiny, about Napoleon, and You Never Can Tell, which is a wonderful comedy about um, women's rights and family conflict. But um, in the preface, it's really a brilliant preface. You can read it in, in half an hour, and it's, it's really a thrilling sort of manifesto for political theatre. I just wanted to read you three short sections from it, because they're very instructive, I think. The first is about conflict and unity in drama. Unity, however desirable in political agitations, is fatal to drama, for every drama must present conflict. The end may be reconciliation or destruction, or as in life itself, there may be no end, but the conflict is indispensable. No conflict, no drama. And he, he goes on to say, the obvious conflicts of unmistakable good with unmistakable evil can only supply the crude drama of villain and hero in which some absolute point of view is taken and the dissentients are treated by the dramatist as enemies to be piously glorified or indignantly vilified. In such cheap wares I do not deal. That's his first statement. And the second thing is, he, he talks about theatre as a sort of necessity of life. The theatre is growing in importance as a social organ. Bad theatres are as mischievous as bad schools or bad churches. For modern civilization is rapidly multiplying the class to which the theatre is both school and church. Public and private life become daily more theatrical. The modern Kaiser, dictator, president or prime minister is nothing if not an effective actor. All newspapers are now edited histrionically. He, he wrote this in 1931, after the first one and before the second one. The truth is that dramatic invention is the first effort of man to become intellectually conscious. No frontier can be marked between drama and history or religion. When this chapter of science is convincingly written, the national importance of the theatre will be as unquestioned as that of the army, the fleet, the church, the law, and the schools. And the last section is about um, the sort of battle in politics between idealism and convention, as it were, conservatism and liberalism, or uh, reaction and revolution. Um, idealism is only a flattering name for romance in politics and morals, and it's as obnoxious to me as romance in ethics or religion. In spite of a liberal revolution or two, I can no longer be satisfied with fictitious morals and fictitious good conduct shedding fictitious glory on robbery, starvation, disease, crime, drink, war, cruelty, cupidity, and all the other commonplaces of civilization which drive men to the theater to make foolish pretenses that such things 
are progress, science, morals, religion, patriotism, imperial supremacy, national greatness, and all the other names the newspapers call them. On the other hand, I see plenty of good in the world working itself out as fast as the idealists will allow it. And if they would only let it alone and learn to respect reality, which would include the beneficial exercise of respecting themselves and incidentally respecting me, we should all get along much better and faster. <laughs> At all events, I do not see moral chaos and anarchy as the alternative to romantic convention. And I'm not going to pretend I do, merely to please the people who are convinced that the world is held together only by the force of unanimous, strenuous, eloquent, trumpet-tongued lying. And it's a wonderful manifesto for theatre being the place where, unlike politics, unlike religion, if you're not telling the truth, then you're not doing any good at all. And, it's, and you can't look to politics or the, or, or the church for truth because they've always got an axe to grind that isn't to do with finding out the truth. And uh, the, for me, what Shaw is putting his finger on is something that is present in English theatre, certainly, very, very vibrantly, all the way from Shakespeare onwards, although it's not that present in Shakespeare, but it's much more present in Ben Jonson, Webster, Ford, the great um, polemical uh, moral plays of the Jacobean and Caroline theatre. And then after the revolution, when all the, the theatres were closed, um, it reappears in the works of Wycherley and Sheridan, John Gay, Arbuthnot, Pope, and then again in a huge wave of, of passionate polemic in the, in the works of people like Gorky, Pinero, uh, Shaw. I mean, not Gorky in England, obviously, but uh, and, and Shaw was the sort of chief proponent of, of theatre as politics at the turn of the century. And it stayed alive today in the works of people like Matt and, and David Hare. We're also going to be hearing a bit of plenty later. But in England, theatre continues to be a place where the nation has a debate with itself about what it really thinks life should, life should be like. And it's, it, as long as it goes on doing that, it will continue to be a vibrant art form. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Matt, would you like to before we... Yeah. Um, thanks for coming. Thanks to the LSE for having us. Um, I have an idea for a play that I want to pitch to you, if that's okay. Uh, my grandfather will be 100 years old in a fortnight's time. And for the past decade, he's been living in a care home. I don't visit him as much as I should. Uh, when I do visit him, he doesn't know who I am. His mind can no longer separate the present from the past. And so conversations about his childhood stray into the here and now and bewilder him. He remembers meeting my grandmother. He remembers taking her to a young farmer's barn dance. He remembers marrying her, but he doesn't remember her dying. And so the woman sat across the other side of the TV room who won't speak to him and who has her own friends. That's my grandmother as far as he's concerned, and they don't get on. Is that better than acknowledging her passing? I don't know. For the past few years of him being in a care home, my family, uh, for the first few years rather, of him being in a care home, my family breathed a sigh of relief. Before, we hadn't quite known what to do with this demonstrative, half-deaf, gently senile old man who liked his own company and hung up during phone calls when he didn't have any more news or when he would bored him. 
Before he left his own home and well into his uh, late 80s, he took an overdose, but it didn't work. Several months later, he cut open a vein in his arm and bled all night into a bucket beside his bed. The next morning, he was miraculously still alive, and so embarrassed, he bandaged his arm as best he could and told no one. A fortnight later, the cut had gone septic, and my uncle hugged him and noticed his discomfort, and thus discovered the second attempt Grandad had made on his own life in the space of six months. The family rallied round. We all felt guilty, outraged. Why did he want to die? What had, what had we done wrong? Were we neglectful? Was this our fault? In actual fact, he was bored. Without my grandmother, he wasn't especially interested in anything anymore. He didn't want to read books or even watch television. He had simply had enough of life. A year later, it became clear he could no longer look after himself, and the care home was the best solution. Another year after that, senility had taken hold of him. At what point does this story become political? Is it the point at which he tries to take his own life and we won't allow him? Is it the point at which he tries to... Uh, is it the point at which we take the decision-making power out of his hands and put him into a home? Is it the far-reaching, devastating glimpse of our own mortality, the state that must surely come to us all? The answer is, I don't know. Or rather, it doesn't help me to think too much about it, because if I did, I couldn't then go and write the play. What I do know is that I can't just write a play about old age, about the care system or the cost of the welfare state, about the 1.7 million more adults who will require support in England by 2026. I may feel a certain definite way about those things, but without a personal route into the subject, I would be lost. I would be a journalist reporting, not a writer exploring. The process of a writer sinking their teeth into a subject, a world or even a single character they want to write about, is a complicated one. Very often your play will take six months or even much longer to ferment into a first draft. As a result, you'll need to be constantly fascinated and surprised by your own creations. They need to lead you into unexpected places and nourish you on what will be a long journey. I think of it like hosting a successful dinner party. You don't necessarily need to love every one of your guests, but it's essential that you're not sick of one another by the end of the first course. My point in talking about exploration and nourishment is that all too often it seems to me that political theatre or the theatre of action is skin deep, agitprop, a bus with the final destination already decided and no stops along the way. Any author who sits down with a mission statement before they write a play has to be awfully good to get away with it. In theatre, we instinctively feel when someone is pushing an agenda or loading the dice. Of course, it happens all the time. I would argue that the real works of art that resonate down the years, the works which one might consider the best examples of political theatre, are genuine explorations of ideas. They are dialogues between the competing voices of an author's imagination explorations of an author's own innate contradictions grafted onto characters that have the wit and the intelligence to make their argument and see their point home. In my last play, I felt myself very keenly going through that kind of process. I was introduced by a friend to a man named Peter who'd worked for many years as an election observer. I was fascinated by the description of his job, the places he'd been, the quiet part he played in history. The more I spoke to him, the more a play grew in my mind. I didn't know exactly what it was. It just seemed to me that there was a story to tell here. Then one day, I found my way in to the political through the personal. I imagined an international election observer who had spent their whole career being impartial, 
but who would now find themselves in a country witnessing acts of brutality which meant they could no longer play fair. They had to participate and help, as they saw it, the right man to win the election. During the writing of the play, my own feelings fluctuated back and forth. In my mind, I knew, of course, that one person, one vote is sacrosanct, that any democracy is built on the foundation of the majority will of the people. But in serving the play and the voices of dissenting characters, I found myself seduced by the opposite notion, that fledgling democracies need our help, and that often the first few elections in a country's history are nothing more than treading water and creating precedent. What if then an incumbent with all the apparatus of power at his disposal was still not able to beat his more moderate opponent, a more far-reaching, reasonable, progressive politician, Mugabe versus Shanghai, and what if we were in a position to do something about it, to help Shanghai win legally, to remove a tyrant from power and to set a country on its right course, would we take it? For me, that active dialogue between two opposing voices in my own head invigorated the play and allowed me to keep changing my mind, to keep the debate alive within the action of the drama. It seems to me that political theatre, the best political theatre, is better thought of in broader terms as the theatre of ideas, competing notions, argument and counter-argument that we should trust an audience to sift through. Film regularly tells us which way to think, but plays should ask us why we think that way in the first place. Otherwise, the theatre of action risks preaching to the converted, a good-natured, engaged set of Guardian readers who feel exactly the same way about a subject walking out as they did walking in. Let's be more ambitious. Trust our audiences more. Let's discuss complex notions and set out tricky arguments and have the faith that people will stick with them. Let's have the courage to reach the end of a play and say, I don't know the answer, both as an audience and as an author. It doesn't have to be dramatically unsatisfying, not if it provokes the kind of discussion on the tube ride home, in cabs, on trains, in the bar afterwards, that the best kind of art demands of itself. Thank you. There's something, I think, very interesting in, in, uh, in the common link, I think, between what you've both said. Um, certainly, if you think about Shaw's mentor, Ibsen, um, in a play like The Wild Duck, uh, there Ibsen is really tackling the, the problem of idealism and how uh, idealism is a fiction uh, or a constructed fiction to disguise um, social inequality. And Shaw certainly picks, uh, picks that up. And it's, uh, idealism is also uh, resurfaced, I think, as it was a sort of theme for political writers in the 70s. Uh, I'm making a link here with David Hare's play from 1978, Plenty, which we're going to be seeing an extract of, uh, which is also looking at the problem of idealism. And your play, The Observer, certainly seems, I think, to be, from what you've said as well uh, today, seems to be reflecting on that issue too. There's also interesting questions, I think, that, that, that uh, both speakers have uh, raised about not just the content of plays, the themes, if you like, that plays address, but the forms that these plays take. Naturalism uh, emerged at the end of, towards the end of the 19th century, influenced by the new technology of photography, and it captures the look of the photograph. Uh, any of you who saw um, Katie Mitchell's fabulous production of Three Sisters played on that idea of the theatre, the proscenium arch of the theatre, being very much like a, the photograph. So the experience of watching the play was like stepping into a photograph, literally stepping into that experience uh, of that period and, and so on. But clearly, um, 
playwrights are writing in you know, use different forms to respond to different social realities at different historical moments. So I'm hoping also we've got some quite some uh, discussion about the different forms that political theatre has taken. Um, certainly recently there's been a sort of uh, uh, upsurge of documentary and verbatim theatre uh, in, in the wider culture, and that might be something to, to think about too. Um, John, I want to just turn to you before we open out uh, into a wider question and answer session. Um, because you kind of came into theatre uh, out of that heady moment of 1968. I know you were training at the Bristol Old mm. Vic in 1968, and you went on, I think, to work at the Contact yeah. Theatre in Manchester. Yeah. And I'm just wondering if that, because that marked a very new departure for British theatre, didn't it? Certainly in terms of the playwrights that emerged from, from 1968. Yes, um, it did. And I just wondered if you wanted to talk a little bit about your own genesis. Well, it's very interesting what, what Matt says about <coughs> Playwrights who write political plays in which the dice are loaded, mm. are pro one argument against another, and they're usually the, the commonest way of loading the argument is to make the character that the playwright disagrees with in some way ludicrous. Mm. And um, you mentioned Ib Ibsen. Ibsen was a great political writer in some ways, but he was horribly guilty of loading the dice. Not in The Wild Duck. I think he'd grown out of floating the dice by then. But if you look at a play like The Doll's House, which was written in order to prove to himself and to his audiences that women have a very raw deal, he presented a marriage in which the husband is ludicrous, preposterous. Nobody would want to be married to him. You wouldn't need to be a particularly adventurous woman to, to want a divorce from Torben. Um, and he, he should have written it more equally because it would have been a greater play it would have lasted longer and you look at it and you think well, it, when you cast the doll's house I don't know a single actor who would ever want to play that husband because you're on an absolute hiding to nothing and it, it makes it too easy for Nora to win all the arguments another political play about marriage The Taming of the Shrew is equally horribly loaded against Catherine. It's supposedly a great battle between Petruchio and Catherine, but actually Petruchio gets lots and lots of solo soliloquies to the audience in which he winks at them and talks about what he's doing and how he's going to get Catherine to agree, and she's never allowed to talk to the audience. It's just not fair. Um, in 68, and you know, in the, in the late 60s, David Hurl, Howard Barker, Edward Bond, uh, they were all writing plays which were heavily loaded against the upper classes, the conservatives. David wrote plays in which there were upper class twit characters, real John Cleese caricature type. And by the time he got to writing Plenty, he had completely changed. He'd sensed that that just wasn't complicated enough. It was too easy. It was the thing you were saying about the Guardian readers. You know, it was easy to to just think, oh, they're the villain because they, they sound frightfully far back and that makes them ridiculous and makes everything they say ridiculous. It's, it's just not good enough. Um, and so I think what... And, and then, you know, David was working in, with portable theatre. Mm -hmm. He was, it was a little sort of agit-prop theatre group <coughs> going around the country using, using theatre in order to try to, to um, propose political and social change. And slowly he started to sense that he wasn't 
he wasn't taking everybody with him, and he had to look at things much in a much more complicated way. And because of that, he wrote better and better and better plays. Until finally, he ended up writing the great trilogy of plays about about British social institutions that were done at the National Theatre. That really, it was the most thought-provoking pieces of theatre one you can imagine ever seeing. Um, so that, so it, it, it's, that's a long way of answering your question, is to say, really what's changed a lot is that the plays have become more complex, slowly, slowly. And when I, when I first started directing new plays, I had no patience at all for the political adjective plays. I directed Brecht, but only the great plays of Brecht, the ones that leave, leave things open. Uh, Mother Courage, Caucasian Short Circle, Good, Good Pleasant Central. All the agitprop plays he wrote are unperformable now. The ones that, that I mean, they're really grim. And uh, they, they, they might just as well be political um, speeches written down and published in the newspaper. But the great Brecht plays are the ones that confuse you and trouble you and, make, and, and leave you with difficult imagery that, that makes you continue to think deeply about the subjects that, that they're concerned with. This kind of celebration of, of ambiguity, isn't there? I mean, yeah. one has to, I guess, uh, in a slight defense of the Doll's House, to wonder whether, at the, in the time of its uh, first performance, whether or not Torvald's actions would have been seen to be as unusual as they are now. His tone, um, right. his, his relentlessly whining tone. His Torvald's inability to, to, to have an argument that's, that's intellectually mm. worth listening to. And there were men then who did, who did take on the, those, those issues. I mean, Shaw was writing much more profoundly than Ibsen immediately after. Even Pinero was writing more profoundly. I mean, I'm, a, I, I'm not in, I don't want to dismiss it. No, no, no. no wonderful, not. wonderful plays, but I think in that particular one, um, if he'd been more even-handed, it would have been a much greater play. But then, would it have been less of a piece of action, a better piece of theatre, but not as good a piece of action? Mm. You know, would it would because of it being so crusading, and so pro the woman and anti the man? Did it maybe cause cause more feathers to be ruffled because mm. of that? And is, was that therefore a good thing? Maybe, mm. maybe it was a greater piece, a greater political tool. And one of the things that obviously came out of the 60s is the, is the notion that the personal is the political and playwrights, I guess, certainly if you, if you think of the feminist politics that emerged in uh, plays of the 70s and 80s, but also the idea that the politics is at the exchanges of power at the micro level became the focus for some really amazing and absorbing um, dramas. Um, and I'm just thinking about your first play, um, Matt, which really when I was reading it, and uh, when I saw it as well, it was that, that sense that actually the central question in that play, which has got principally a domestic focus, it's a small group of guys, a syndicate who've just purchased a dog. Um, I mean, maybe you want to talk a bit further about it, but the central question in that play is who's going to have the courage to speak out against injustice? Um, and, and that question emerges from what is a, um, a play about the everyday, the everyday is sort of media in South East, like that, South East London, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Can you and, talk and a bit about, about 
Yeah, I mean, the play, it was my first play and I really didn't know what I was doing. Um, and I think you can probably tell a little bit of that. But I, I, I was working at the time um, at a crash repair centre. Uh, I left university, I read English at UCL. I left there, I didn't really know what to do. My brother got me the job at washing cars at a crash repair centre and I hated it and he knew I would and he knew it would make me make my mind up. And I met a, a fascinating bunch of guys there who were part fascinating, interesting, and some of them were genuinely really scary people. And um, I kept jotting things down in a notebook. And when I finally left there and came to London, uh, I thought, right, I've got to turn this into a play because I'd always wanted to be a writer. And what I was initially feeding off were those notes, were those people. But of course, when you shape those characters into a world, they grow into other things and they start standing for other things. And I think uh, that the, the sense of justice, the sense of um, looking for answers and one particular character really looking for his older brother to make a stand and not be the bully that, that he is looking like he's going to become in the drama absolutely came out of the political situation it just you know what 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 we were doing as a country on the world scene at that time along along with america completely fed into that situation i'm sure of it i didn't intend to write a play about our intervention in iraq but that that's kind of was in there i think um the other very interesting thing about that about your play i think is that the, the, the central um, conflict scene in the second act is the there's tor a torture going on in a room and you can't see it and the the door is barred and the characters are in the bedroom knowing that it's going on and incapable of deciding to intervene and I didn't see the play but as I was reading it I kept asking myself would I be able to knock that door down and insist that this torture doesn't happen um, and I'm not sure I given this, if I had that same relationship with those other guys, I'm not sure I would have the courage to do that. And it's very unsettling to know that of yourself. And in that sense, the play is extremely important, because it, it's not just about the individual characters in the play, it's about the individual members of the audience imagining themselves in that situation. And that made it, for me, a very successful political statement. <laughs> Thank you. Can we um, ask questions? Uh, yes. Thank you very much. Um, my questions actually come from the perspective of the developing world in some sense and theatre that occurs over there. And so when I look at something like Theatre of Action, I think about Augusta Boal and Theatre of the Oppressed, for example, or Perla Freer, or in Pedagogy of the Oppressed, or in my country of, of India, a lot of street theatre, where that's, that's very, very political. The proceedings broken down. You're right there in the crowd. And yes, I mean, it may, it's, very, I mean, it's very political, it may not have the luxury of having very sophisticated denouement, but it's real in, 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 in a very profound, visceral sense. And in that sense, the question is asked, is good theatre necessarily powerful and vice versa? And yes, let me leave that question with you in that context. Thank you. Could you repeat the, the, the question? Was it is powerful theatre necessarily good theatre in your and, uh, and, uh, and there's good theatre with uh, ticking off all the boxes in some sense, really something of a luxury for particular parts of the world and not others. 
Can I, can I just come back on that with a, with a question to you? What made the situation that you described, you described street theatre and you described Bawar, what made that political for you when you used that term? Um, there was, I mean, in many cases it was a response to real inequities in society. Badal Sarkar, for example, working with procession in Calcutta, yeah. for example, is, is raiding against a very strong centrist governmental intervention in the lives of a populace that is very, very poor. And, okay, let me leave it there. So for instance, yeah. I think, I mean, under, underlying your question is, is, is does theatre need to have a lot of kit in order to yeah. really work? And I think that's a very interesting question. Um, sometimes the most powerful theatre is the theatre that, is, is, that happens outside theatre, mm -hmm. that isn't trammeled by conventional stuff, you know, proscenium arches and velvet curtains and seats and expensive tickets and bars and cloakrooms and all the, all the stuff that you, you think you've got to go through. And also convention. And when Shaw was writing, there was a convention that, that, that plays were three acts, and you had to have two intervals. And it was very difficult not to write in that convention. And then slowly the, that, that convention changed to two acts. And it was such a strong convention that, that the Royal Shakespeare Company, Shakespeare's plays were always performed with two intervals, heavily cut, in order to make room for the intervals. And then slowly the, the fashion turned to one interval, and all the plays that used to be in three acts, you had to find an artificial moment somewhere in act two to, make, to put the one interval you were going to have, but you had to butcher everything. And very recently, in the last five years, there's been a fashion for 90-minute plays maximum. And you, theatres in the West End, negotiating with producers, have had to have a special clause put in to recompense them for not having intervals because they used to make all their money at the bar during the interval. You sell extra programs, and so you had to actually give them like two or three grand a week extra in the contract. And for, for several years, it looked like all plays that weren't 80 or 90 minutes long were, were going to be impossible in the future. But it's wonderful to see, you know, good, good thoughtful playwrights are starting to expand again. Um, because it started to affect everything. People started to feel they had to cut King Lear down to size in order to, to, to get it over with quickly so people could go out to dinner after they'd seen it. Um, and, and those conventions are incredibly, profoundly unhelpful to, to, to theatre doing the job it's supposed to be doing. Convention of any sort. And it's often very instructive just to strip everything away and say, what would this production be like if it was just done on a on planks on a few barrels in the street. No costumes, no lights, nothing. Just what's the story? And how well can you act it? Yeah, I, mean, I completely agree with that. I mean, I think if you strip the kit away, you're left with the storytelling and you, it's exposing in the best possible way how good is the story that you're telling. For me, the most exciting part um, of, of having a play on is the final run through in the rehearsal room because the actors are still wearing their own clothes uh, on a floor that is taped up in a room where, uh, you know, the walls are pretty bland and it feels like you're, you're really seeing something alive and spontaneous. And it's strange when you get into the theatre and the lights go on and, as John said, the curtain's there and people have suddenly got costumes that they feel a bit uncomfortable in. Suddenly, sometimes it can feel like, oh wow, I'm watching a play now. And it's actually quite sort of 
arm's reach. So Distance, yeah, I think isn't it? it is absolutely. And you can be at some some theatres, like especially a musical theatre, you can be at somewhere if you took. And you think if you took all the kit away from this, there would be precisely nothing left. Yeah. <laughs> there's, a, there's a sort of black hole at the centre of what I'm watching <laughs> that is being disguised by all the rubbish that's surrounding it. There's, there's a kind of mission in there. If you, all, new, all new movements in theatre, I guess, establish themselves to establish, through establishing new conventions. I'm just thinking of... Strindberg's preface to Miss Julie that you may be familiar with your your nodding where he talks about abolishing the interval for for starters um, to create that kind of immersive theatrical experience that can have kind of proper impact but but that's not obviously the only example Um, and also the way that theatre conceives of its audience or other theatre makers conceive of of its audience and and locating theatre at the centre of broader coalitions of activism um, which are which is a significant part of that, uh, to attracting new audiences. Yes. Thank you. I just wondered if, um, if that, that argument of having the play, the, the content, as ambiguous and sort of not resolving or taking a position at the end of it, I'm just wondering, to what extent would that be? Would, would you apply, would, could we apply that to societies everywhere? Because I, I wonder, is it society specific? Because just to give, take the example that you used of Zimbabwe, um, would a playwright wanting to spark people to action, perhaps because um, there's no ambiguity where hunger and human rights violations are concerned? I think. Um, so, to what extent would a writer be? Um, or rather, um, to what extent is that argument of of ambiguity and sort of detachment and letting people just make up decisions for themselves at the end of the day? To what extent is it society specific? And because I think that there's still a place for crusading um, sort of plays, and they have had an impact over yes, time. Absolutely, yeah. I completely agree with you, and I'm not advocating plays without a sort of end. I think, I think a playwright should make a decision at the end of their play they should they should make their mind up which way because it's unfair of a, of a playwright to ask an audience um, to go the whole way they've got to go some of the way with them what what I would argue against is deciding that destination in the first minute um, what I think is the, the best kind of political theatre is that journey that back and forth and I think the audience demand and should should be given a satisfying climax, a play that makes its mind up, but along the way, we're allowed to change our mind. Um, that doesn't entirely answer your question, does it? It also depends on who. It, it depends on who you're trying to convince as well. I mean, there are certain political <coughs> things that have happened in history, like um, uh, racial equality is better now in the United States than it was 100 years ago. And there were plays, polemical plays, written in the 20s and 30s that were passionately inveighing against racial prejudice and were not being heard by huge portions of the, of the population. There were other plays that were more ambiguous and subtle. And were, now, both plays probably had a, sorts of plays, had very, very powerful effect. We now know that the, the things that Ibsen believed about feminism uh, we, we, we would all broadly agree they were the right things to be saying 
um, and therefore that battle is sort of won. But would it be better for that play to have been written in a less polemical style, or was the polemical style the only way he could have written it? And, it, and it, it, all it all comes down to who do you think your audience is and how do you think they're listening to you? Because some people will be deafened by the tone that you take up if, you're not, if, you, if, you, if you don't judge it very carefully. There is a marvellous book. I, if, you, if, you, um, if you're attracted to the idea of ambiguity in theatre, there is a wonderful book by Howard Barker, the playwright that John mentioned, called Arguments for a Theatre, which is an evocation and celebration uh, of radical ambiguity in theatre in a culture which, according to Barker, has become sterile with sound bites and simplistic political positioning, basically. Um, and that, that series of treatises and uh, polemic is a wonderful, wonderful defence of ambiguity as a theatrical mission. And it's, in, it's fully evidenced in his own theatre of catastrophe. But I also think it is worth thinking about the history of theatre, and particularly those theatres that aren't preserved in published plays, um, the workers' theatre movements, um, the work of unity theatre, um, generally speaking, those, those forms of theatre which aren't interested particularly in becoming part of a canon of playwriting or, or even in the virtue of longevity, but that are written for specific moments, specific uh, causes, if you like, um, whether in the early 70s with the, you know, the rough and ready agitprop plays of David Edgar, or in the 1930s in the living newspapers and the work of the Federal Theatre Project in the USA. There's loads of examples of that, and books are published on that too. But interventionist and propagandist theatre is not something that I think anybody would want to say. That's so simple. That's too banal. What I was very struck by in reading, <coughs> reading um, you, there was a bit of, there's a play by Martin Crimp that I think we're going to be seeing a bit of later. And I was reading some of Martin Crimp's plays. There's a huge amount of anger in Martin's work. Um, because he looks at, you can sense that he's looking at society and getting incensed at what's wrong with it. And his way of responding to that anger is to pour it all into a play, which somehow expresses his frustration at the hypocrisy and madness of society. And there's some anger in your work as well, in that there, there are places where you can feel that you are not happy Mm. with some of the things that your characters are not happy about, and you're using the characters in order to express that unhappiness. Mm. Some of Shaw's plays are very angry. Others, the play's unpleasant. There's a real anger in, in uh, Mrs. Warren's profession or Widow at Houses or Major Barbara about the radical injustices in late Victorian life. But other plays, he says, no, let's have a laugh at it. Let's just all have a huge laugh at how idiotic we all are. And I don't know which, which sort of play would have the, the greater effect, because am ambiguity and a sort of blithe-spirited mockery of institutions can sometimes be more devastatingly effective than an angry denunciation of them. Mm. It, all, it all depends on how you choose your target. Okay, we've got about two or three minutes before we'll see the three excerpts performed for us, which is going to be great, but we can take a couple more questions. The microphone is being delivered. Thank you. Um, I'm wondering if, I, it's kind of an opinion question, but if you think that um, inciting a desire for the audience to take action on a particular cause is kind of a worthy goal of 
theater, if, if, if you think that, and if so, if there's a particular form of theater that is kind of opportune or suited to inciting kind of political action outside of the theater. Well, I think, I think the sort of theater you're talking about, uh, gentlemen, who's talking about Indian theater, the theater that's done by groups like the San Francisco Mime Troupe, that just takes a political idea that they want to fight for, and they go on the street with it, and they mock the opposition, and they, they um, thump whatever tubs they feel need, needed to be thumped and try to convert people. There's a risk to it that anybody who doesn't really fundamentally <coughs> agree with them is not interested in watching them. And so they're always preaching to the choir, as they say in America. Um, that's the problem, is that you soon work out who are the theatre groups that you approve of. And you don't go to them if you, uh, if, if you don't approve of them. And I think what Matt says is much more, much more effective. That people who know that theatre is, is a place where intellectual debate can be at its most powerful and passionate get drawn to it in order to find out what they think, in order to discover what the real truth of a, of a subject is. The, the tricycle, I don't know whether anyone recently saw the, the um, <coughs> Afghan sort of series of plays that the tricycle did. Um, that was an amazing example of that. That was a great example of going to theatre and learning, just sitting there and learning about huge portions of history that I didn't know about, and sewing together this sort of complex view of this country and suddenly realising, wow, okay, this is kind of why we are where we are now. Um, so I'm, I'm much more for that kind of thing. But it's all part of the diet. I mean, I think it's it's because the you know street theatre that's incredibly angry might nudge conventional theatre on a little, and that that might nudge something else on a little, and so you're constantly moving forward by everyone just poking and nudging. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, one final question, then, and then we'll start moving on. Is that a hand up, or are you just crossing your fingers in? No, that's okay. Sorry, don't look so It's nearly over. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh, hi, I, I just wanted to follow up on that uh, topic of ambiguity. I wanted to ask Matt, what, why can't you stop uh, or, or um, finish a play in, in complete um, ambiguity? Because I would say that the dangerous thing is is when when you're wrong, when we're all wrong together. But but being being wrong all alone is is not dangerous. Okay. Okay. So, so why can't we end a play in complete ambiguity? I think I think a good, really good writer can. I think it goes back again to who are your audience, and I think there's there's a storytelling from the very earliest dawn of man has been about very simply a start, a middle, and an end. And I think as an audience, we demand an end to something, and that tends to be a conclusion. It tends to be something that's sort of. Uh, comes to a halt and now we know in life that that's ridiculous nothing you, there is no real end point to anything so I think really good writers find a way to land a play but don't tie it off they don't let the ambiguity uh, die they, they let that bubble on I think total ambiguity um, I'm trying to think of a play where I've waiting for God yeah <laughs> which is I, I would argue the exception that proves the rule yeah. in a way that, that it that starts ambiguous it is ambiguous all the way through and it ends up <laughs> but you know I think um, if you saw two or three Waiting for Godos in one year after a while you'd go God 
give me an end. I just want an end. I just want something to you know. Bring God on. <laughs> <laughs> and on that rallying cry. Um, are the actors ready? Do, oh, do I need to? Where are the actors? Ah, you're oh, looking wow. the nervous two rows here at the front. Well, excellent. Can I, can I, where do you want to do your performances? Should we just... Yeah. Okay, can I just take this opportunity to thank our two speakers, John and Matt. Thank you very much.